When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The names behind the numbers. The stories behind the names. This is the Her Hoop Stats Podcast with John Little. And so I joined the eighth grade boys team. I not only played, but I started and I was the leading rebounder. And at one point, you know, one of the opposing coaches during a timeout came up to my coach and told him that I was being too rough on the boys. And so, you know, <laughs> at, that, at that point, I knew I could really do something with this sport. <laughs> the biggest newsmakers, the best storytellers, the Her Hoop Stats podcast. Here's your host, John Little. Welcome into another week of the Her Hoop Stats podcast. Thank you so much for being back with us. And what a great show we've got for you today. More on that in a second. But congratulations to Tisha Pinichero for going into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame in Knoxville this past Saturday. Thanks also to her for joining us as our first guest on the podcast a few weeks ago. Of course, last week we had Tamika Catchings on to some great response from that episode. If you like what we're doing, please make sure to subscribe or like us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, make sure to rate us. Uh, give us whatever you feel like we deserve there and give us a review as well because that helps people find the podcast. We are so excited for the great show today. We've got Megan Gustafson with us. And then a little later on, Linda Price. I'm going to introduce you to her a little later on. But if you've ever heard of the Wayland Baptist Flying Queens or the Hutcherson Flying Queens, you're going to learn why they help propel women's basketball forward. It's going to be a lot of fun. But first of all, Megan Gustafson, everybody's National Player of the Year, a 1,000 points in her senior season at Iowa, led her team to the Elite Eight. 
just an incredible story. And, of course, she goes through the whirlwind at the end of her senior year of not only having to receive all these awards, but then also having to try to make a roster in the WNBA. And one of the biggest stories in the WNBA this preseason was that Megan was one of the last few cuts off the Dallas Wings roster this year. It shocked many, surprised many. Other people not quite as surprised, not necessarily because they don't feel like Megan is a great player. Obviously she is, but just because it's so hard to make a WNBA roster. And I thought for a little bit of context, I wanted to start out by listening to LaChina Robinson kind of talk about this. She had some great perspective on her podcast Around the Rim a couple weeks ago about why it's so hard to make a WNBA roster as a four player. And Megan, of course, playing the five in college. Now she tries to move to the four in the WNBA and why that might have been difficult. The four in the WNBA is arguably the hardest position to play because most teams run their offense through the four position, and you got to be able to do a lot of things at the four. (laughs) When I was in college, all you had to do was be able to hit a high post shot, and you could play the four, okay? (laughs) Now, I mean, look at some of the best players in in the league. I mean, Stewie, Deladon, Candace Parker. This is the four spot we're talking about, people. The versatility that's required there is 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 challenging. Six three has now become very very small at the five. It has nothing to do with Megan at all. I think she's so talented. I believe she's going to find her way onto a WNBA roster because she's one of the hardest working players. So determined, very skilled. She's going to figure it out. Thanks so much to LaChina and her producer, Tarika Foster-Brasby, for allowing us to play some of that audio for you because I think it sets up some great context. But at the same time, in listening to Megan speak, I think you're going to hear this as well. She is not going to rest until she makes a WNBA roster and makes a big impact at the WNBA level. And this is just going to be a part of her story, another chapter in her amazing story. So I hope you enjoyed this chat here on the Her Hoop Stats podcast with Megan Gustafson. Yeah, it's been it's been crazy, honestly, these past couple of months, but um you know, thanks for having me on today, and I'm excited to just talk about my journey and, um, you know, hopefully I can inspire a lot of people to go after their dreams. Absolutely. I, I know you will, and I know that your blog, She's Got Faith, is a big part of that as well. Tell us about your blog, your first post, and what you're hoping to accomplish with it. Yeah. So, you know, I've wanted to do a blog for a few months now, um, you know, just to be able to document what I've been going through. Um, you know, this is kind of a unique experience. Not a lot of people get to experience stuff that I have been, and I've been really blessed to be able to say that I can experience these things. And so to be able to have a blog, um, was something that I wanted to do. And, you know, unfortunately it's not the way I wanted it to be, but you know, in terms of, you know, figuring out my WNBA experience and, um, you know, documenting that, but honestly, I think it's a great thing in terms of being able to really emphasize my faith. And that's ultimately what I wanted to do in the first place. That is awesome. Just excellent. Well, take us through the steps because, like we said, it has been a whirlwind for you, and it really kind of began at the end of your senior season at Iowa, getting your number retired. Uh, Great run through the Big Ten tournament. Great run in the NCAA tournament as well. You were really on top of the world, picking off every player of the year honor, basically, that there was in the nation what was that like uh, to just experience that kind of success at the end of your college career? Yeah. I mean, it felt amazing, you know, to be able to 
you know, be at the top of my game my senior year, you know, and be able to have the run that we did, you know, Big Ten Championship, Elite Eight. Again, being named National Player of the Year, I couldn't imagine, you know, that happening four years ago when I came to Iowa. And, you know, I'm just blessed to have such a great support system around me. Um, you know, my teammates are the ones setting me up every single day, and I have to thank them. And, um, you know, they make me a better player, and I'm thankful for that. And, you know, it was special to be able to experience all that I did with my family, too. They were able to travel with me to all the different award shows and, you know, the draft and everything else. And so um, it's been quite the ride, and I'm very excited to um, see what happens next. And after all that success, you hit the draft. And what was it like on draft night, just knowing you had so many people in your corner and rooting for you in Iowa from your hometown, and it was a little bit of a nervous wait as you were trying to figure out where you would go? Yeah. I mean, going into the draft was definitely nerve-wracking, you know, especially because I didn't know if I was going to go first or second. Um, You know, a lot of people had me going first round, and you know, I thought that was a possibility, but I also had realistic expectations in knowing that, you know, I could go second round depending on what the teams needed. It was tough. I'm not going to lie. Not hearing my, my name called in the first round, um, but I knew that it was just not meant to be. And so I just kind of relaxed after that. And I was just excited to hear my name, you know, at some point. And I'm glad I heard my name and it was an amazing experience. Um, and it was fun to have my family and my coaches there too. And you think you'd be done with the jet setting after you get drafted, but but not really, right? The busy schedule continued. Yeah. So actually, right after the draft, um, the next morning, I headed to Los Angeles. So I took a flight straight from New York to Los Angeles um, for the ESPN College Basketball Awards. Um, You know, I was able to meet some really cool people like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And, you know, it was cool to experience that. And then I went back to Iowa City to wrap up my season with my team. We had our team sports banquet. Um, and then the very next day, I went to St. Louis for another banquet um, for the USBWA National Player of the Year um, awards banquet there. And so I had a couple award ceremonies after that, and it was super fun to be able to, um, you know, kind of wrap everything up. And then it was down to business, you know, training really hard. I, I trained really hard to make sure that, you know, training camp wasn't going to be as hard as I thought that, you know, I'm going to train as, super, as hard as I can so that training camp was easy. And so, um, you know, a lot of training went into that. I was working out about three times a day just to get ready for it. And um, yeah. Well, it's not only trying to make the Dallas wings that was difficult. It's also trying to juggle your schedule during that time as well. What was that like? There was a lot of things going on, you know, with the awards ceremonies and trying to finish up school. I was in 15 semester hours, uh, one of my hardest semesters that I've had, you know, and trying to finish up those and trying to, you know, talk to my professors and tell them what's going on. And, you know, I also had different other events around the state of Iowa. I had a bunch of signing events. You know, I went to, I threw threw out a pitch for a baseball game. Um, I went to the state capitol to get a resolution in my honor. And so there was a lot of other things going on. But, you know, I just try to compartmentalize and try to focus on where my feet were. You know, Coach Bluter always says, be where your feet are. And I love that quote. And I think it it's really helpful in terms of trying to balancing everything. I love that. That's a great way to put it. And your feet found you in DFW, and you're trying to make the Dallas Wings. And everybody talks about how difficult the process that is. I mean, an accelerated preseason, the training camp, only like a week and a half, and you're in a preseason game. No matter who you are, that's just a really tough transition. What was it like living it? Yeah, um, it was definitely a learning experience, Um, you know. 
I'm so glad I went through it. You know, honestly, I know that even though it was hard and to be able to not know what's going to happen the next day in terms of, you know, if you're going to still be on the team or not. But, um, you know, I just try to keep a positive attitude through it all. And again, I just learned so much, you know, going into with into training camp with the wings, I kind of started a new position. You know, I was not really doing center stuff. Um, I was doing more shooting from the outside. Um, you know, I did post up every once in a while in terms of, um, you know, high-low game, um, you know, cutting to the basket and then making my move. And so there was definitely an adjustment in terms of a whole new position for me. And, you know, I tried to embrace it. And I think, you know, at first it was tough. I was, you know, kind of rushing things a little bit. But that's always going to happen when you have the adjustment there with the new level. And so, you know, after a few days I was able to adjust and, um, you know, to really learn things. And, you know, again, it was tough. But it was also rewarding, and you know, I met some really awesome people there too. And that transitions perfectly to what I wanted to talk about because uh, Lachina Robinson recently on her Around the Rim podcast talked about the adjustments that you likely had to go through going from the five in college to the four in the pro game and some of the difficulties, uh, some of the more challenging aspects of that, uh, assuming that other teams around the league are going to want you to play the four down the line. Uh, what were some of those things that were most challenging for you? I think the biggest adjustment for me was trying to find new ways in order to put myself in a good position. So whether that's you know passing the ball in the wing and I'm cutting into the lane, and making my move on, like making my move on the move, um, if that makes sense. But, you know, a lot of times, you know, I won't have time to set up, you know, in terms of as a center, you're able to get position, you're kind of in one spot, but at the four, you're on the move all the time. And so, you know, being able to time those seals when you're running and you're on the move was something that I really had to adjust to. And, you know, eventually I I started to get it and um, it's something I'm definitely going to keep on improving on. Another thing LaChanda talked about is how much of an adjustment it is on the defensive side as well, because the four could have to not only guard the four, of course, and they can be very athletic at the WNBA level, but you could have to slide down to the five. Uh, You might even have to slide up and and guard the three every once in a while as well. What was it like defensively for you? Yeah, it was definitely an adjustment, Um, you know, being able to try to guard multiple positions in terms of instead of just the post players and Um, you know, that's probably the area I improved on in the most, I think, um, in terms of using my feet, trying to be quicker, um, trying to be more explosive and, you know, trying to figure that out. And yeah, it's very true. I definitely, you know, I'm not the biggest post out there. And so, yes, I'm going to have to guard some really quick players, you know, once I do get back to the WNBA, um, it's something that I'm excited about to take on that new challenge. And, you know, I, I saw improvement for myself defensively throughout camp. And that was only a couple of weeks, so I'm really excited to see what I can do in the next couple of years. Absolutely. And just tell us about what that experience is like when you're with Brian Agler and you're with Greg Bibb and they're giving you the tough news. Is there a lot of back and forth in that moment? Are they giving you pointers? Are they giving you things to work on? Are you asking that or pulling that out of them? What is that back and forth like in that moment? Yeah, um, obviously it was tough, but at the same time, I think it was helpful to know what their perspective was and why they made the decision that they did. Um, You know, I think it was a bit encouraging in terms of, you know, they told me that um, they do see me being in the league, you know, sometime soon. And that I just need to keep working on, you know, developing those, you know, power forward skills and, um, you know, whatnot. And so I think that was encouraging, um, you know, and obviously, 
I'm going to take this and use it as motivation to keep on improving. And, you know, it's tough right now um, because I know that I'm ready for the WNBA right now. Like if I were to get a call, I could play right. I know I could play right now because I have that much confidence in myself. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of people will say maybe it's a little bit too different of a game at that next level. Um, you know, in terms of going from college to WNBA, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's basketball and I've been playing it my whole life. You know, I know I understand that people are bigger, faster, stronger in the league. Um, but I'm ready for that next challenge. And, you know, obviously right now I just got to control what I can control. And that's my effort in terms of training. Um, you know, but I'm super excited to get back out there. No doubt. I know that's a possibility for you later on this summer as well, getting another shot in the WNBA. I know you're also thinking toward what choice you're going to make as far as where you're going to play overseas. And I'm curious to know, is that a negotiating topic when you're talking with teams overseas where you make sure that they're going to use you in a way that's going to help you get better for the WNBA? Or is that not really a factor when you decide where to play overseas? You know, it's definitely a little bit of both. Um, Definitely, it's important to keep improving on what I need to work on. Um, And that's, you know, working on those four position skills. And I'm definitely going to keep doing that. I've already started training and doing it already here in Iowa City. Um, But at the same time, the league league overseas is different than the WNBA. Um, You know, WNBA is a little bit more guard-oriented, which is great, fine with me. Um, but also the, you know, the league overseas really utilizes posts really well. You know, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I'm thinking that I'm going to be more of a, a center there um, and something that I'm kind of used to. And so that'll be nice to have that familiarity. But I think I will also have the flexibility to be able to work on those power forward skills as well. I know this is very new to you. This is the first time that you've gone through it. But what part of the process are you and your agent in right now as far as making a decision where you're going to play overseas, and, and when do you hope to have that sewn up? Yeah, I'm kind of in the process of finalizing some stuff, um, you know, trying to figure out what's the best fit for me. And, you know, my agent's been great in terms of figuring out what's, the, what's in my best interests. And, um, you know, I hope to make a decision soon. And I'm sure there's been a lot of interest there. Uh, tell us about that recruitment process. Is that something where teams from overseas have a direct contact with you, or is everything done through your agent? I don't have a lot of experience in this, but, um, you know, what I've experienced so far is definitely, you know, everything's going through my agent. Um, you know, I've been, you know, before we had discussions about where I want to go and what I kind of expect out of my first season. And she was able to kind of run with it from there and talk to different teams overseas and to see what's the best fit. And so, um, what's great is that, you know, my agent has been in the business for a long time and she's amazing and I'm super excited to keep working with her. Absolutely. And I think that I can speak for pretty much everybody that we've been really inspired by your response to your adversity here early in your WNBA career in, in getting cut. Who did you rely on during those early moments after it happens and you're having to deal with it in an emotional way? Who did you rely on and and what did you do to help you through that process? Yeah. Um, obviously it was very tough. Um, one of the toughest things I've ever gone through. Um, you know, especially because I was one of the final two cut and, you know, two days before opening tip, you know, at that point you're thinking, okay, I'm still here. Um, you know, I have a pretty good shot of being on the final roster and then you kind of get, get that call and it's really tough. Um, you know, 
unfortunately the, the other girl that was with me you know she was going through the same thing and I wish she you know wouldn't have but at the same time it was great to have somebody there going through it um you know with me and so um you know I relied on her and she relied on me and so that was nice to have somebody else um but obviously I also relied on my family talking to them on the phone that night you know talking with my Iowa coaches you know I called them you know called them as soon as I could you know talking with my family friends and so that was important and you know, I went right back to Port Wing and what I, the first thing I did is I didn't look at social media for about two days. Um, you know, I wanted to stay away. I wanted to kind of process everything. And that was the time when I was able to really focus on my blog and launching it and to figure out what my, what my response was going to be and how I truly felt. And, you know, my blog was something that I really spent some time on to make sure that, you know, this is how I truly felt. That's awesome. And it's a great way to get it out. And it was a great first blog post. Another interesting aspect of all this is that you are such a key piece, such a key link between the college game and the pro game. You've got so many devout, loyal fans of yours, not only with the Iowa program, but also where you're from in Wisconsin. That whole area just loves you. And when you got cut, there was this real revolt against the wings, a revolt against the WNBA in some way because they had kind of wronged you in that way. What was your reaction to what transpired social media-wise after you were cut? How did that make you feel? Yeah, honestly, um, it's been incredible to see the support I've gotten. Um, Iowa fans are crazy, but I love it so much. Um, You know, they... They really, truly care about the players that come through the the program every single year. And, you know, this might be a little bit of a recruiting tidbit, but anyone who's, you know, thinking about going to Iowa and they're wondering what the fans are like, I mean, there's there's nothing like it, honestly. Um, they are the best fans in the country, and they proved it. They, they proved it the past couple weeks um, to the whole world. And the whole world got to see how amazing they are. And, um, you know, I'm just so blessed that I have a fan base that, that really supports me and loves me no matter what, you know, good times, bad times, everything in between. And at the end of the day, that support system is what gets people through those good times and bad times. It sounds like you've had great experiences with Iowa fans. Is there anyone that stands out above another? I wouldn't say there's anyone specific, um, you know, during these past few weeks. I've definitely seen a lot on social media and I'm very thankful for the support they've shown. But over my past, you know, a couple of years at Iowa, the uh, Stribe family, Harper Stribe, she uh, was a little girl who was fighting cancer and, you know, our team adopted her this past season and her and her family have been such an inspiration to me and, and my team and just to have, you know, them as, you know, supporters for life and, you know, I support them and, you know, I'm always going to love them for that and um, they've been really special to me and, you know, I'm going to keep in contact with them. That is awesome. We're visiting with Megan Gustafson, and, well, the good news in all this is that you immediately get another opportunity. Uh, You get a lot of good headlines because it's announced that you're going to play in the basketball tournament with the Iowa United. How did that develop? How did that opportunity come about, and why did you choose to accept it? I actually got, let's see, I got a text message from Nicholas Baer. Um, He's one of the, the people on the team, and um, you know, he said that the team's interested in me. And so I thought, why not? I've got nothing else going on. And I didn't really know too much about it. And so, you know, just talking with the general manager and the head coach, um, it's kind of like a really cool opportunity. 
Um, you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, my eighth grade year, I actually played on the boys team and it's kind of coming full circle now. I'm going to play with the boys again and I'm excited for the challenge. Obviously, it's going to be tough going against some really good athletes, but I think at the same time, it's going to really, really make me a better player. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny. So they apparently originally reached out before Nick reached out. Uh, they reached out via social media, but I was kind of avoiding social media for a couple of days. And so, um, you know, after I, he reached out, I, I kind of looked on social media and I saw that they were tweeting at me. And so, of course, I wanted to tweet back at them. Um, and I did. And it's just been a really exciting process. And I'm super excited to start training for that. One thing I did realize is that I'm going to have to start practicing with men's basketball soon. <laughs> I got to start. I got to get on that soon. <laughs> well, there are a lot of parts of it that feel like they could be really positive for you, whether they be the exposure or the level of competition. Uh, what are you most excited about regarding the basketball tournament? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to keep playing at a high level. Um, that's something that, you know, obviously if I can't get into the WNBA this summer, it's important to keep training at a high level um, to get ready for overseas and then hopefully the league next season. Um, but I think, I think I'm most excited to represent women in this in this kind of platform um, to show that women can do anything that men can do, and you know we're gonna we're gonna keep fighting every single day um, to get exposure. And um, I'm just excited for that opportunity, and I think that I can inspire a lot of people, um, especially little girls all across the country who maybe have faced obstacles and were told that they can't do what men can do. Uh, but I don't believe that for a second, and I don't think they should either. Well, you're absolutely right, and as a dad of three girls, I I just think it's so important that equality continues to be championed in that way. You know, I know you've had a lot of interaction with young female fans over the last few years. What's meant the most to you as far as those interactions go? Yeah, it's been amazing to hear about the different stories that the fans have come up to me about. Um, I think the biggest thing is, you know, if there's if I'm doing some autographs for some little girls, even little boys, and their parents come up to me and they say that I've been such an inspiration to them, I think that means the world um, just because I know that I'm able to make an impact on them. And, you know, they have someone to look up to. And at the end of the day, I've, like that's all that I've always wanted to do is just to have a platform and use it to really do some good and to um, help others realize their dreams. That is awesome. I want to talk about your offensive efficiency and just the prolific nature of your game because you scored over a thousand points this past season one season and so many players don't even score a thousand points for their college career and you shot 70 percent as well which is incredibly efficient what do you think even in the earliest stages of your training and your upbringing led to that efficiency yeah um i think it's a part of who i am honestly the the work ethic is something that I've always had and, you know, I have to thank my small town roots for that is just, you know, being grounded and to know that I need to earn everything, you know, and nothing's ever been given to me. And, you know, growing up, my parents and my sister have been super supportive of me. You know, they've always been there to rebound or whatever I need if we're together and we're going to go shoot. Um, but I think honestly, you know, above all of it, I think I love the repetitiveness. I love the boring part of what people don't see. And, you know, that's me going in the gym by myself for hours and just shooting over and over and over again, post move after post move after post move. Um, you know, a lot of people might get bored with it, but I don't, I just absolutely love it. And I think just overcoming the monotony of that is something that a lot of athletes need to do to be able to be great. 
Um, and thankfully I've been able to figure that out and, you know, hopefully that I will continue to do that. I love that quote, overcoming the monotony of it. Uh, I think that's going to need to be attributed to you down the line. And I also want to talk to you about another thing in your blog post. You talked about the three-and-a-half-hour one-way trips to AAU basketball practice. What would you do as a kid to get through those three-and-a-half-hour trips? You know, I'd probably nap or sleep. (laughs) Um, You know, I'd read books, you know, talking to my family. Um, You know, those were great family bonding times. And, um, you know, we'd talk about the different upcoming AAU tournaments and where we would be traveling to. You know, I love my little AAU program out of Menominee, Wisconsin, Team Wisconsin. Um, you know, they're a great program. They may, might be small, but they've produced some pretty great talent over these past few years. And it's just been great to be able to be a part of that family, too. You seem sold on AAU programs, and that is awesome. Because it's something else I wanted to ask is, how can a kid get the most out of their AAU experience and have it be a positive experience? Because so many times you hear about it's just about individual basketball and there's not really a team aspect to it. What would you recommend to make sure that the young athlete gets the most out of being on that team? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, AAU can be a really great thing. Um, You know, I think it's important to really stick it out. I think, you know, a lot of times there'll be, you know, people who will go into it and do a couple tournaments here and there for the summer, um, but maybe not do others. But I honestly say that, you know, if you're going to commit to a team, you know, go all in, you know, go to every tournament you can, go to every practice, um, you know, and really try to get the most out of that experience um, because you never know who's watching. You know, there are different college coaches watching every single game, you know, and that's important for the exposure. But at the same time, if you're trying to get the most out of it, you need to find a really good AAU program. And I think it starts with the the head of those AAU programs, you know, whether it's, you know, the the coaches, the coach that you might be coaching with or the head of the program. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's important to find someone like a head of a program who really cares about you as a person first um, and then as a player second. And, you know, that's been really helpful for me, you know, Team Wisconsin, you know, Mark and Cardinal, they both, they both feel that way about me. And, you know, I can, you know, a hundred percent say that, you know, they care about me as a person, they're going to develop me, you know, you know, when I was there, they developed me as, you know, again, caring about the team, team first, um, team first mentality. And, you know, my, my last year, um, you know, being an AAU, we were the eighth ranked team in the country. And it showed that we loved each other and being surrounded by the team is so important. And when team first mentality is emphasized by your AAU program, the head of the AAU program, you're going to be able to do some really good things. Absolutely. Got to be thoughtful about it. When did you know in your upbringing that you had a real shot to be a college basketball player? When did you know that? I mean, we've all got those dreams Uh, of you know being the best at whatever we do but when did you know there is a realistic chance to be a college basketball player and it's something that I I deserve you know I think I you know I always grew up loving basketball you know both my parents played and my sister played um but you know I mentioned a little bit about my eighth grade year I honestly think that was a turning point for me because you know again we didn't have enough girls for the eighth grade girls team and so you know, the, the head, the coach for the boys team came out to me and said, you know, we want you on the team. And so I joined the eighth grade boys team and I, I don't, I not only played, but I started and I was the leading rebounder. I think I was the second leading scorer on the team. And at one point, you know, one of the opposing coaches, 
during a timeout came up to my coach and told him that I was being too rough on the boys. And so, you know, at that, at that point, I knew I could really do something with this sport. <laughs> that is an awesome story. And let's delve into that a little bit because um, obviously, you know, once you get to the pros, yeah, they're just a little bit bigger, faster, stronger, and you've got to take that next step. And so that's one of the things you're working through right now, uh, trying to gain strength without losing any quickness or any other of your skills. What are you doing to try to become an even stronger basketball player at this point? Yeah, it's definitely important to keep the strength up. Um, you know, something that, you know, coming into Iowa, I didn't do a lot of weightlifting. Um, you know, I did a little bit here and there, but, you know, the coach, coaches really developed me into a pretty good weightlifter. And, you know, I had um, one of my teammates, um, my Iowa teammates, Hannah Stewart. She was my lifting partner. And coming into coming into college, she loved lifting, and I I really didn't know what a dumbbell was to be honest. And it's kind of funny; she was the one that was encouraging me and challenging me, and to to lift heavier. And you know, four years later, we were both challenging each other. And so, you know, I think it's important to have that support in terms of you're not alone in this. You're going to get bigger, faster, stronger, but we're going to do it together. And that's what I love about the Iowa program is that. Um, you know, work together and everything, you know, the good times, the bad times, um, you know, developing into the, the strongest player you can be. And, you know, at this, to this day, I, you know, I really, I do enjoy lifting and it's something that I'm going to continue to do. And I know it's an important aspect of um, developing my game to the next level. Awesome. Well, Megan, we're so appreciative of your time today. Uh, let's promote the blog one more time. Uh, tell us about your plans for it and where we can find it. Yes. Uh, She's Got Faith is the name of my blog, and um, I'll be having my next post in the next couple days. And I'm going to be planning on doing my own social media site for it. And so um, I'm super excited for it. You know, hopefully I can inspire people with it. There she is, Megan Gustafson here on the Her Hoop Stats podcast. Thanks to Megan for her time. Congratulations to her on her blog. I think she's about three posts in now. She's doing a great job with it. And good luck down the line as she lines out everything in her pro career. And we wanted to also bring you the opportunity to hear an interesting perspective from women's basketball's past. Have you ever heard of the Hutcherson Flying Queens or the Wayland Baptist Flying Queens? Well, Linda Price is the president of the Hutcherson Flying Queens Foundation, and they literally laid the foundation for women's college basketball. When you look at it in its totality, they're the all-time winningest program in women's college basketball and just did a wonderful job of advancing the game from its very infant stages of half-court basketball and three-on-three to the point at which women were playing five-on-five. So it's such an important story to tell. And now the Hutchison Flying Queens, several decades worth of Flying Queens teams, will be inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame later on this year. And I talked with Linda Price, the president of the Hutchison Flying Queens Foundation, about what it was like for her, what she felt like when she found out that the team was going into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Well, it was breathtaking for me, and it was like, you know, a dream, another part of my dream come true for life, for Naismith to make this selection and to have created this uh, committee that recognizes veterans of women's basketball. For Wayland itself, it's uh, it's such an honor, and I, I think it's 
very well deserved. The um, era that's being recognized is the 1948, 49 through the 1982-83 season, and that was really the beginning of women's organized basketball in the United States, and Waylon led the way for that. I was so happy that it happened in my lifetime. Double-digit national titles for Waylon Baptist during that time. How did the success of Waylon Baptist help pave the way for the women's game? First of all, it was the university, Wayland Baptist, when they first had the foresight of allowing and creating scholarships for women. It's a stronger word than opportunity, but they were the only ones in the United States doing this. Here we had a little college in, you know, uh, in the panhandle of Texas offering scholarships to women to come and play basketball out of high school. So it created an opportunity for women, and it's really a stronger word than opportunity because... There were no choices before that if you didn't have the money to pay to go to college, but you had athletic ability and wanted to play basketball. It allowed all these young girls to play and come and get an education, and, and that's, that's what started it. And then that created the opportunity for Wayland to start recruiting the very best there was in high school in Texas, Oklahoma, Iowa, some came from Tennessee, but they came from all over the nation to uh, try out for this. Second point would be the coaches, the coaches themselves. Their focus and their vision on pushing toward making a game great for women and their push to change the rules to be, become more progressive. For instance, I mean, we went from playing three on three half court, then to a system of a rover, which was six players on the floor, two guards, two forwards, and two players that could rove the court, could move from both ends, any two, and then pushing for the change to five-on-five full-court play as it exists today. That was led by the vision of coaches at Wayland. In the 50s, we had 131 consecutive wins, four national championships consecutively. That record still stands today for women, 136 All-Americans. And it's sort of mind-blowing to realize all these women, these great players are coming out of the small school. And then those players graduating, going out there and starting programs in other universities because, again, some of this was before Title IX. These players and graduates of Wayland, you know, were pushing and, and trying to help implement Title IX, and they started programs in high schools and, and colleges all across the United States. Cherry Rapp, you know, she's a flying queen, and she began the program at North Texas University. They played all over the world. I mean, they just brought notoriety to women's women's sports and I think put a dream in a lot of little girls' heads that I can do this, and I think that's what's really helped. You played in the 1960s. What was it like for you as a woman playing basketball back then, and how have you seen things develop in women's basketball since you played? I was fortunate. I mean, girls coming from the rural areas, and I grew up in rural southern Oklahoma, we were luckier than a lot of girls growing up in more urban areas because I do believe at that point um, in time, in the 60s, late 60s, when I, when I went to Wayland, I was coming from an environment where 
women actually, the girls were treated just as equally in sports as the boys. And that had to do with, I think, being a rural environment. Um, but it wasn't happening. I mean, the, the bigger schools, Oklahoma City, they didn't have girls' sports, and neither did those schools in Texas. Of course, you know, I saw the sexism and, you know, um, the limitations. I played in the rover system. Lots of people at that point were saying, oh, well, girls can't run up and down the court and play five on five. And and in Oklahoma, that was really prevalent. Uh, I think Oklahoma and Iowa were two of the last states to agree that uh, to go to a five on five play in high school. They held on to it for a long time there, right? The six on six was a was a big deal in Oklahoma. It was, and going there, you know, and having relatives that coached there, my brother coached there, and even my own brother didn't want to see it, and I was going like, it, it needs to be, you know, and uh, it was funny, you know, a little senator from uh, Colorado said it once, said that, uh, you know, she was actually told that uh, a woman can do this because her gears might fall out, you know, before <laughs> oh, and she did that. And sort of more funny stories I've heard about it. But obviously, proving them wrong on that, it was very hard to get it implemented in schools. I know people, I didn't personally go into coaching myself. I chose another profession to go into, the mental health field. My friends and fellow players who went into coaching, you know, they tell me and how difficult it was to implement programs in high school and colleges uh, for girls' sports. And many of them were told at that point, you know, I'll hire you to coach in this area, but I don't want you wanting to add or increase your budget. I mean, that tells you right there, you know, they didn't want it to become equal to the boys' program. Mm-hmm. and. And the women that I know that came out of Wayland, they were faced with those situations. They got hired, and the next year they came back with a bigger budget, asking for the same amount of money as the boys' sports. And, of course, that's what Title IX was all about, and it, it took quite a battle to, to get to where it is today. And and even today, you look at um, the differences in the uh, NBA and the WNBA, yeah, you know, there are huge differences in pay, pay scales and uh, media coverage and perks and, you know, ability to stay home with family. I mean, it just it doesn't exist for women like it does for men. So we've got a ways to go. So the fight's not over, but um, the battle is being won, I guess I would I would say, or it is in my mind, but um, you, you can't become placid about these things. And, you know, people who have little girls know that. I think the parents really realize it now and, and are, are really helping. And so that didn't always exist. What would life have been like for you without the opportunity that Wayland Baptist provided you? You know, I grew up in a situation in southern Oklahoma, as many did, in a fairly impoverished situation. And there was no way out for me in terms of going to college had it not been for the Flying Queens. When I learned of the Flying Queens when I was six or seven years old, I saw then and set that as my dream that this is a way that I could go to college if I could get good enough at basketball and get a scholarship. And that was my dream, and it happened for me. That's how much it meant to me personally. 
um, it changed my whole life. And I'm sure it's the case for many of the of the flying Many, queens. many, many. Uh, if uh, if you go on our website, the uh, Hutchinson Flying Queens Foundation uh, Facebook page, I've started publishing stories from former flying queens, and it's just amazing how many of them came out of similar situations. It says it all of, of what Leyland meant. If someone were to ask you, why should Wayland Baptist, why should the Flying Queens be a part of the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame, how would you explain it to them? I believe Wayland was the foundation, was the beginning of, and then the way they continued and were successful is that they needed and now are getting the recognition that they deserve, not only the institution itself, but now the coaches and the players who were there during an era when equality did not exist nationwide, but yet it did at Wayland. The impact that that had then, not just in Texas, but nationally, is just unbelievable when you start looking at statistics and who went where and which programs got started by whom and then what happened to those programs and what's happening today. It's a startling fact, and and I'm just so thankful and grateful that that it's gotten recognized. That is Linda Price with the Hutcherson Flying Queens Foundation, and I thought, you know, this podcast is the perfect place to bring some of that to you just because I don't want it to be lost on anybody why they're going in not only the success of the program not only like 131 straight wins in the 50s 131 straight wins but then also what they were able to do just for women's college basketball going from half court three on three to the full court five on five pretty incredible this was another jam-packed show and i am so proud of it and so grateful for everybody that stopped by today but we've got another one coming up just next week it is it's super first of all it's really hard work to to win a game in this league but second of all it really is a great job and it's you get to play a game for a living and to never really forget that that this is a lot of fun and it can be fun even though it's hard the head coach of the new york liberty and the all-time leading score in pro women's basketball history, Katie Smith, stops by to chat with us. Can't wait to bring you this show next week, next Monday. So make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can rate and review us as well if you're on Apple Podcasts. That will help us out so much. You can reach out to us by email, podcast at herhoopstats.com or on Twitter, I'm at John Little Voice as well. Thanks to everybody involved with the podcast this week, including our announcer, Susie Solis, our music by Jared Depp, and the executive producer of the Her Hoop Stats podcast is Aaron Barzilai. Make sure to subscribe and join us next week on the Her Hoop Stats podcast, where we are unlocking better insight about the women's game. Her Hoop Stats. Stats.